Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by our dear friends at the Justice Brothers. And speaking of dear friends and brothers, how are you, my man, my co-pilot, my weekly co-pilot, Graham Goodwin of DailySportsCard.com? I'm very good indeed, MP, and I'm happy to say that with summertime officially having hitters in the UK, I've got daylight as I'm recording this for the first time in many, many months. So uh, in good order, refreshed after a uh, fabulous trip home, completely away from uh, motorsports and uh, seeing my old mom, who's not the best of health, um, which does mean that there'll be a question we're going to be asked later that needs me to explain why I didn't do what I normally do at this point of the year. But great to be here and with another huge list of questions to tackle. Well, I do enjoy the irony of it being evening time in the UK and the sun is out. And here I am in northern, supposedly sunny California, and it is as gray as can be. So I think someone managed to swap weather in our locales. Before we jump in, before we ask you to do the weekly honors of picking the first of the various topics that we uh, segment our questions into, I wanted to offer a just a general thought of support and love and maybe a little bit of encouragement for our listeners if you're so inclined to pay a visit to social media probably twitter twitter might be the best place and uh, where you can find john andretti uh, someone whose career has covered everything from indycar Uh, he did top fuel drag racing Uh, and really where john came into i think uh, most prominence in terms of his career rising up that would have been in the 1980s in sports car racing uh, that being in the imsa gtp days and we spoke with john had a feature here on the uh, on our little podcast in january celebrating the 30th anniversary of john's win along with bob wallach and the entire busby racing team overall victory in that gorgeous miller sponsored porsche 962 at the 24 hours of daytona John has been in a fight uh, against colon cancer for a couple of years now, uh, has been screened, has been asking folks to get screened. Men, obviously, uh, go and get yourself screened. But John, someone who has been in this cancer fight, Graham, has beaten it. It has come back. He has beaten it. And it's back again. And at least when we spoke in January, um, he just sounded really down and had the the voice of someone who wasn't entirely convinced that their time uh, time on this planet was going to be extended that much longer. So just as someone who I've come to know, and you may or may not know him, you might have heard the name, but just as someone who has been a, a truly fine and upstanding member of the racing community, someone who's done great things and brought a lot of thrills to folks throughout the years in many disciplines, also has a very rich sports car history as well. Uh, if you have that 30 seconds and you like doing such things on social media, maybe just drop John a tweet, uh, giving him some encouragement. Um, it probably isn't going to cure anything, but I can tell you that just having some form of warmth and positivity coming in from an unexpected uh, voices 
it can do wonders uh, to help one's mindset and just general outlook while dealing with something that could be uh, could be life ending. So I just wanted to offer that as a little note here to start off the show. Not necessarily in a somber note, but just someone who has uh, who has been a pretty darn awesome person and i hope we have them here a lot longer so maybe a couple notes of encouragement on the good old social medias graham uh wouldn't be a bad thing spot on kick its ass john kick its ass so of our list of questions that we have here we always go to you our sage of whether we can start <laughs> with imsa with the weck aslam echo elms that being wc asian lamont series aco or elms topics general topics and then fun and each week some of those buckets have more questions than others so where should we go where should we start I think we kick it off with uh, Ayers for IMSA. And I've got a question for you, actually, because I've just had a quick look down the uh, the list. And uh, it may be that uh, the timing of Ryan Kish, and thanks again, Ryan, for pulling this together for us, uh, putting these together, uh, didn't quite coincide with the publication of what I have to say, MP, excellent job from you on Ford and their future uh, across international sports car racing, not just in North America, but across the WEC. And I guess I'll ask you a question first, which is, tell us what you know. Tell us what you think you know. Uh, certainly, I've been having some conversations that uh, would accord with the very excellent piece I read on racer.com. Well, thank you, mate. Uh, knowing how you and I have been talking about this for months and sharing uh, what we know and trying to clarify lanes and pathways of possibility. Uh, been on this for a little while. There's obviously been a number of things written about a Ford DPI coming, being in the works. I don't know what. Um, would say that of all the takeaways, and I would encourage you to visit racer.com and give the little piece a read since it is uh, the product of about two months or so, if not more of work. It's everything I am hearing of late, and this is up to within, I don't know, maybe three, four, five days ago, is what we think the decision will be from Ford, from Ford Performance, will be to extend a new contract to continue running the four GTs on a professional level, factory level, in IMSA's GT Le Mans category and the WEX GTE Pro. So that would be for some of us who can't wait to see a DPI arrive that could be received uh, as a bit of a, a disappointment. Uh, again, I, I maybe should should underline things. The big thing that's been going on, in particular during the first couple of months this year, is no decision. And that has been the, the source of immense frustration. I heard a story of, uh, of one person within the very general Ford and Ganassi team camp uh, venting heavily about this, somewhat recently as well. Just the fact that Good Lord, man, give us a direction. Tell us what's going to happen. And so I don't know if anger or whatever you want to call it uh, uh, would be the way to describe it, but just a, you know, boy, we really want to know. Can you please let us know? And so from what I keep hearing is the expected direction. It is to stick with the GTs, to do that, extend a two-year contract to keep them in motion 2021-2022, to align with IMSA's 2022 
new DPI, call it version 2.0 gram. In that formula, we are expecting uh, absolutely 100% to see a spec-ish hybrid system. Not super powerful. By comparison, maybe not super expensive to what we know in uh, the WEC, but uh, this DPI thing we've heard and heard again on background, there's no money for it in terms of building a fleet, selling them, and supporting them. There's money to develop it. We're doing that, but uh, the budget just hasn't been there to say green light. We're going all out right now. And so therefore, I think just having to, it's an assumption, but I think the mindset could be one of <clears throat> Mr. Goodwin that We've already built the GTs. We've already invested in that infrastructure. They're here. We got them. We got lots of them. We got a team that runs them for us. We've been in those championships for years. While the money to run the uh, program on an annual basis isn't necessarily small, it's a lot smaller than having to start from scratch with a whole mm -hmm. new project, whole new vehicle. So I think that is the main takeaway that would will very likely no guarantees, but very likely lead to a two-year extension of the GT program. That's based on what we're hearing today and what we have been hearing of late. Could there be a change to that? Yes. So this is why I stopped short in what I wrote and saying, this is the path forward. They're, they could absolutely change. We could see a DPI next year if the budget comes from somewhere. But I, I've been hearing more and more that Ford's mindset is since the auto industry in general is moving so heavily towards uh, electrification, hybridization, something that's, you know, we continue to see more and more of, that there's just a mindset of saying, well, hey, if we're going to do something new in sports car racing, then we should probably make sure it has a hybridized element that aligns with our marketing goals and initiatives. And assuming that's all accurate, that pushes us towards 2022 in IMSA and in DPI. So the other just quick couple of things to tack on, and again, I encourage you to visit racer.com and read this, is we've also been hearing the drivers have been told for a while, just hold station. Hold, don't, you know, please, I know we can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but don't start leaking out and looking for other opportunities elsewhere. Stick with us. I think we're going to be able to do something and, and so on and that i believe is has been honored and uh you know i think there should be contracts coming uh for the both sides imsa and WEC drivers to keep doing what they're doing another quick note too is mark rushbrook in speaking with him i don't know maybe six weeks ago uh he did say that they're looking for more ben keating like opportunities graham to find mm -hmm. more uh privateers that fit their criteria to buy one or more of the gts so i believe they had i believe they built nine i think eight plus a test vehicle and so they've sold one the chassis their first actual race winner with uh westy and briscoe at monterey and whatever year that was 2016 was it i think um mm -hmm. so if you look at the two that are raced in IMSA, the two that are raced in WEC, in theory, there's still a pretty decent fleet of, call them extras, that could be sold to anchor the pro effort with some factory-supported people paying Ford Performance uh, ECR engines and whatnot for, uh, not ECR, good lord, uh, Roush Yates engines, uh, 
for support there. Uh, so we could indeed have, come 2020, same factory GTs plus some, some independents, who knows, uh, racing in IMSA and WEC as well, possibly. Uh, and in theory, DPI coming a couple years down the road after that. So that's the picture today. If there's any changes to that, then obviously they will let us know with whatever press releases come out. But this is the thing you you and I have heard is the most likely scenario. And knowing the struggles, pains, and concerns we have for car counts and longevity for GTLM and GTE, if BMW pulls out and Ford were to potentially pull out, this, I think, it could actually be the best possible outcome to know that we will have, even if BMW chooses to go, we will have the Fords on the grid uh, for a couple more years. Well, certainly not expecting BMW to be pulling out of IMSA GTLM. I think we might see the factory effort, at least, uh, looking uh, elsewhere or out of WEC, but that's not to say we lose the cars. Again, lots of machinations happening in the background at the moment, lots of watch this space, but that really is, I mean, at the moment, the best way to do these things, isn't it? It's pull those strands together. It's not the shock and awe of this might, would, could, should happen. These are the things that are the options. And, and the, as you say, there's an awful lot of balls in the air. It is just a very different industry than it was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. And all of a sudden, it's a very different environment for those good people whose job it is to loosen the purse strings of people at board level to let us go racing. Um, I think this is one of the one of the uh, the excellent opportunities for you guys, our listeners, the fans of sports car racing to see just exactly what that means on the ground. Things that you might have been certain about even days ago might not be quite as certain anymore. Watch this space. Um, let's get stuck into IMSA then. And I'm going to start serving these up like a manic, well, person who serves a tennis ball, really. Michael Metropolis, which is a great Brilliant. name. At, Mike, at Michael time. Metro 97 on Twitter. Loves listening every week. Thank you very much. Thanks, on the podcast prog- side, Cadillac is discontinuing the CTS and the ATS-V models this year on which the Cadillac DPI is based. Will this cause Cadillac to look at a different DPI engine for 2020, possibly a new twin-turbo V8 uh, like their sedans have? That would be an awesome thing to learn about, to hear that that is going to happen. I will certainly ask their program manager if there could be any adjustments. Well, let me rephrase that. I can ask. <laughs> I actually know that I won't get an answer. Uh, and that's not a critical statement. Just, you know, some manufacturers are open to giving you a little sliver as to what might be their, their thought process. Others tend not to. Cadillac traditionally has been one to open the books there. Um, great question. And I, Isn't it? I hate to say this. I don't mean hate, but it's like, in theory, I'm supposed to be on top of all these things. I hadn't even thought about that. Thought, I should oh, have thought about no, it <laughs> No. So actually, Graham and dear listeners, thank you for listening, for having me here. I'm actually going to resign because clearly Michael should be doing this because I'm not doing my dang job. Um, uh, I guess kidding and or painful truth aside, when we're maybe looking at that 2022 DPI 2.0, that'd be an interesting, th- very interesting thing to look at whether, and I wouldn't necessarily re- limit this to Cadillac, 
whether any and all of the brands currently involved who I expect to be back. I'd be very shocked to hear any of the brands, current brands, say, oh, we're going to leave when the new formula arrives. I think that might be just a a class-wide appraisal saying, hmm, okay, uh, do we just bolt in the same old lump into a revised chassis arrow and with a uh, kinetic energy recovery system in place? Or do we look at what, you know, uh, what road car showroom sale type marketing alignment might be befitting uh, this DPI 2.0 thing? So I would just would say quick flash reaction, Michael, would be Cadillac has been very proud of the efficiency that they have achieved with their program from a financial standpoint. That's not saying they are cheap, and that's not saying they aren't spending quality money to achieve the the runaway success they've had with TPI. What they've been able to do, though, and I just wonder if this might carry on into 2.0 DPI, is, hey, you know, we're not trying to just change things up and spend for the sake of spending. If something's working, really working, what things can we carry over to this uh, 2022 car in the interest of not only quality performance, success, championships, all the things that they're currently having and have been having, but maybe the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it thing. So, you know, whereas uh, you don't necessarily have this, the, the model ranges of Cadillacs that you've mentioned that have that automatic alignment with the DPI VR uh, model, there's just a part of me that says, you know, Cadillac with a big V8 uh, that makes great sounds, I think that's just going to tickle people's hearts for a long time. If you can throw in the mandated angle of the uh, energy recovery system, hey, it's now going to be a hybrid Cadillac, and it's not necessarily something Cadillac has to go nuts in their, uh, you know, with their racing department to make their own hybrid engine slash uh, power unit package. That might be, you know, the modernization angle that comes for a, a 2022 type uh, build mindset. So anyways, that's just my initial thought with them. You know, would Mazda, for example, be ripe for saying, okay, we're, we've been doing better and better things with this two liter four cylinder turbo, but should we, you know, come 2022, provided there's something maybe in their product line that does it, or maybe they just say, nope, it's pure bespoke. Uh, do a pick the number three liter, three and a half liter twin turbo V6. You know, could definitely be uh, interesting to see if all the brands reconsider. Cadillac, though, Graham stands out as one that might look to not shuffle too, too much if they don't have to, regardless of whether there is a streetcar alignment. Yeah, certainly with the couple of years they've still got to run with this rule set, MP, and certainly with a competitive advantage it seems they've got, particularly in the big races, you sort of ask, would ask the question, why would they give it up? It's um, on the DPI theme, this one from Adam Smith, who says, okay, he's still a newbie when it comes to sports car racing. He's a question concerning the IMSA regulations. If a team purchases a DPI chassis, could they put whatever make engine in it they want and run it, or does it have to be in collaboration with one of the manufacturers? Must be in collaboration 
on the uh, on the DPI front uh, must be in collaboration with a manufacturer. I wish, uh, <laughs> I wish there was the run what you brung angle because I would probably I would buy a Delara. Well, I don't have the money, but just go with me, friends. I would buy a Delara P two seventeen chassis. I would find either a BMW or a Jaguar V12, might be a little bit old, uh, drop that in the back, and I don't, uh, you know, since this was referenced by our, our good pal Carlos Villalobos on Twitter this morning, I might hire the same folks who did the body work for the Cannibal uh, WSC car um, to do body work for that. I would love, Adam, for there to be the, again, the kind of run what you brung allowance. Hey, you know, maybe you can pick pick up a, you know, a uh, Cadillac DPI and, and drop something different in the background. A old IMSA GTP Buick Turbo. <laughs> guaranteed pole position every race. Guaranteed yellow flag on lap two. Guaranteed <laughs> use of at least 50 pounds of oil dry and uh, 20 or 30 <laughs> brooms to mop up the exploded, uh, the, the Buick remnants. Uh, it's also unlimited, unlimited entertainment. Well, no, but here's the thing, too, and, you know, we just need to pay tribute, retro tribute. You know, you think about the Buick GTP program, they were probably the first to keep fans in mind and make sure that those sitting in grandstands some hundreds of feet away or on hills, they got actual free memorabilia. It was yeah. in the form of twisted and broken rods, pistons, all <laughs> kinds of things that exploded out of their engines. But, you know, I mean, gosh, you talk about a, a just great and charitable company. Um, but back to your point, Adam. The way the rules are written, the uh, the process is very simple. Team purchases a DPI chassis. Uh, they got to run it as it is homologated. And homologated is, I'd say, Graham, give me your thoughts. Is that equal, dead level, with our most hated uh, thing in racing? The letters BOP <laughs> for balance of performance. but Homologation. I, yeah, yeah. Something that is locked down. You build it. The series could be IMSA, ACO, WEC, could be the SRO. They go through every part and piece, document every part and piece number, and say, eh, locked in place, can't change it without permission, and you probably aren't going to get permission unless there's something really bad. So uh, it's a homologated car, Adam, therefore it must be run as built and as purchased. So can't play now, unfortunately. That's what we used to do. That's the era I grew up in. I long for the times when we maybe ever get back to it now if you listen really really carefully down the internet you can hear adam tapping away on his keyboard and cancelling that order for two multimatic chassis and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and a pair of opal v6 engines there we go uh let's have a quick look zach anderson asks about uh, Long Beach coming up very soon. Does anyone think that Mr. Jarvis, Oliver Jarvis, has a legitimate shot at pole on the front row at Long Beach? Or do the caddies have just too much grunt out of the slow corners? I would say, and if I, if it's up and I have yet to find it, then it just means I'm ignorant. And yet again, we need to replace me with Michael in the show. Uh, if BOP is out for Long Beach, provided they're going, IMSA is going to make any BOP changes, I haven't looked yet. I probably should, but that the answer to such questions are always driven by balance of performance first. Unfortunately, 
if there is any kind of BOP modification, then I would, uh, to the negative for uh, Mazda, then I would say the answer is no. Uh, based on what we saw at Sebring, at least, uh, Zach, we did, you know, the cars certainly looked capable of going quickly. I Obviously, one was not on track particularly long when Mr. Timo Bernhard, when they had the uh, battery fire, um, and then the other car had other issues. So they weren't there long enough to really make a grand statement as to whether they had the pace to win, but they at least, Graham, I believe, showed that they had the pace to be very competitive oh, yeah. in a at least a podium conversation had they made it to the end of the race. So if we're just using that as a model of potential, I would say that there is absolutely uh, a chance that we could not only have Ollie on pole or one, you know, one of the two Mazdas on pole and very much the possibility of a win. Um, <clears throat> if you think about what IMSA has done through balance of performance, and I think I've just used our third and final uh, allowed <laughs> reference to BOP. We haven't had, had that in a long time, Graham. We really haven't. So that's a good thing. But uh, IMSA has done, a, I would say, a. they've been very mindful of trying to balance their cars, their DPI cars in particular, so that there's no massive swing in advantage based on architecture so that the big naturally aspirated the thing just destroys all the other models all of them being turbos uh on a street course for example or the turbos have an extra 20 miles an hour in top speed on the straights at big long tracks because they're still making power while the v8's running out of air um th so they've done i would say a pretty good job of that so just keep in mind that while uh the the turbocharged Acura, Mazda, and Nissans might not have the initial punch of torque. It isn't long before the torque curve on the V8 peters out, and those turbos are still pulling like raging, raging monsters. So it should be interesting. And I'd just say that really, other than the hairpin leading onto the front straight, there aren't... I can't really think of any other places where torque would just be the one differentiator in terms of performance among these DPIs. Everywhere else, there, there's enough RPM or they're in a high enough gear to where there's not going to be a massive separation there. So provided we don't see that big crazy jump off of the corner, the final corner, I think we should be just fine and could have a pretty exciting race. Excellent. One final one from Zuff at the moment. It comes from Justin Ford, who asks about the Michelin Pilot Challenge, uh, the CTSC as was, and asks, how are you finding that so far? Better? Worse? The BOP changes? Is that better? What about TCR? Is that sustainable? Any thoughts, MP? I'm enjoying what they're doing so far. I don't want yep. to fall into the same complaint that I've made multiple times in the past of, um, uh, well, uh, of being disappointed that the build your own vehicle uh, option has been taken away altogether so you must buy a homologated tcr gt4 ish type vehicle uh but i would say there's something there and you know the the tcr racing has been very good there's mm -hmm. been some surprising stuff there with the alfa romeos you know kind of perking up a bit obviously we've got uh, a really good audi versus hyundai versus honda thing going on 
So I like that. Uh, I would say up front, kind of in the the GT4 angle, uh, I have enjoyed that too. I think there's been some some quality racing as well. So yeah, I mean, I, I just maybe try and couch my overall thoughts, Justin, on the fact that this is a, in theory, meant to be a training series, a development series. I know that there are many teams and a number of drivers as well who effectively have made a career out of living there. And you can see that and say that in other, you know, similar places in the world. If we look in open wheel in America, you have the Indy Lights series. There are some teams that have been in that series forever. And it seems like that's all they do and then never going to go anywhere else. And that's okay. But uh, at least for me, I look at a series like the Michelin Pilot Challenge and say, awesome, are you developing next generation drivers, mechanics, engineers, refuelers, etc., cetera, uh, to go upwards? I'd say, yes, that, that has been working. And are you doing that with teams as well that are looking to move up, hopefully, into the WeatherTech Championship? And I, I think that, you know, I think there's some good possibilities here too. So at least initial impressions, uh, it's only stood out as, pretty darn good and uh, rather high quality racing there's been a great you know surprise or two here or there so far in 2019 so generally i'd give it a thumbs up man excellent stuff we've got one further question we're going to hang on to until we get closer to the detroit uh, race from jamie bender but thanks for your kind words in particular to the answer we gave to your question last week about who the hell is christoph bushu and no i'm afraid i have no idea where you can get christoph bushu uh t-shirts and memorabilia um yeah yeah uh, <laughs> yeah well so uh, i would just say jamie that might be an ebay thing not knowing uh i mean you can certainly find some level five stuff uh crew shirts and whatnot because i bought one of them on ebay and graham wore it for a little bit at daytime I did. and i used that on the as the back of my to kind of the frame the back of my chair for the event but i don't know if they actually made any Christoph Boo shoes quadruple awesome um or quintuple awesome at level five t-shirts or that kind of stuff but uh maybe if you look elsewhere if you go to ebay and and type in uh, i'm looking at it i'm looking at it no i'm looking at signed signed cards signed cards there's uh, all sorts of signed cards are those loan loan cards what are they kind of uh well there's uh there's one with an audi gt3 car there's two here from different um Years Mercedes Benz ones because of course Christoph was part of that setup for a while. Wow. You know what? I've got a horrible feeling I may have got a card framed upstairs in my loft from Christoph Bouchard. Yeah. There are lots, lots. I'm gonna have to find that. That, it, it, that first of all, if that is not photographed <laughs> and posted on social media within an hour of this show going up, uh, you're officially fired until next week. Um, <laughs> But I would just say, Jamie, you would also be wise if you're doing some Google searching keywords such as bent sports car body panels, broken pieces, just thinking of well, things being sold from teams that were the recipients of Kristoff's excellent driving that often led to fenders and doors and all kinds of things being ripped off and shedded so there might act it might not be actual boo shoe swag but the byproduct 
of his dickish driving career and bent panels and memorabilia that might be the kind of thing that there could actually be a whole subset like a subgroup of broken bushu bodywork triple b there we go on ebay well i think there's a twitter challenge from the weekend sports cast this week if you've got eddie christoph bushu swag let's see it on twitter oh we must make this happen well (laughs) if we are done with imsa my friend where should we go next Let's go down the wacky, wacky road of Wack Aslam's Elms Echo. Was that, yeah, and we keep changing it, but uh, that's okay. Hopefully our dear listeners realize that uh, we're not always as linear as we should be. And at this little junction, let me mention this because I have been very remiss. Go ahead. Be, you can do it. It, it. it won't hurt you, I hope, and it won't blow things up. There's no malware, I believe. MarshallPruittPodcast.com is a thing. It's alive. It's working. It's functional. It has all 500-plus episodes we have posted to date. There is a dedicated The Weekend Sports Cars page that has every episode we have posted. Same with our other shows that have dedicated pages. The little search function on the top right I am enjoying because I have genuinely forgotten many, many, a couple hundred of the podcasts we've put up. So sometimes, just out of curiosity, I'll type in the driver's name, a series, a something, and there's a lot of fun that comes back from there. We also have a subscribe page, which should help you if you are a new listener or if you're trying to point friends to what this uh, this little thing is about to either uh, download or live stream, you name it. So marshallpruittpodcast.com. Give it a little whirl. Uh, It's just meant to be the home uh, for what we do here. And every new episode that goes up is usually, although it hits Podbean, our host service first, within 5, 10, 15 minutes, it's live on marshallpruittpodcast.com and has a dedicated link you can share there. Uh, Uh, Didn't didn't you hit uh, another significant milestone last week? 700 pounds? No, no, I've been losing weight lately, <laughs> my friend. You, you rat bastard. How dare you? Um, no, 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 no. Uh, well, we, it's not me, it's we, and it's and I say that as in you and I and our listeners, because, you know, I'm certainly not doing the, the numbers on my own, but uh, yeah, we, uh, I think, yeah, about a week and a half ago, something like that, we uh, crossed two and a half million downloads since we launched the podcast in May of twenty. 16 so we're coming up on our third anniversary there and yeah the other cool thing it's just you know it it is a thing is with uh march having just come to a close uh, i've started doing year to year uh traffic comparisons and uh for let let me grab it because i actually wrote it down on something so i would not forget naturally it is not exactly here it it is was was what did you write it down on the cat no no rocky no no, so here's my ATM pin number and passcode. Uh, no, no, wrong piece of paper. The password is password, by the way. Uh, yeah, in, in January uh, from 2018 to uh, 2019, a 26.7% increase in traffic year to year. For February, uh, it was 21.2% growth in traffic. And then we just closed out March with 22.2 growth in uh, year-to-year traffic. Uh, so, yeah, seriously, 
you know, this is just a little thing that we do and we enjoy it. And we are so thankful to have uh, Team Cooper Tires, to have Cooper Tires behind us and the Justice Brothers, Toronto Motorsports, Bell Helmets, just a lot of good friends, a lot of good outlets as well. But, you know, it all comes down to the fact that uh, you all listening make this possible. And here we are talking about it. So instead of me talking about that, let's talk about the thing that came here to hear about. And that's Weck Aslam Elms, Aiko, led by the man who actually does reporting on those things, Graham Goodwin, formerly a male stripper, now a Absolutely. sports car uh. reporter. Let's go to number one from our number one fan in Switzerland, is it? Right turn? It ever? is, yeah. Talking about this uh, hydrogen-powered 24-hour Le Mans initiative and whatnot, uh, who says, how does the H24 compared to the Dutch University Project, uh, which was also based on the 8S uh, chassis, if memory serves, uh, that is run in supercars. So, yeah, we've got a couple of questions here about uh, the H24. So I figure we'll start with Right Turn Lovers and then move into a couple of more of those. But does that remind you of what's been happening on the uh, the good old Dutch side? Well, that, that was a pre-existing uh, project. You're absolutely right, Right Turn Lover. It is indeed based, as as is H24, on the ADES uh, LMP3 chassis. As far as the tech is concerned, I'm not altogether sure. I do know that the, the Dutch-based uh, uh, initiative has been through a number of iterations. Uh, the big difference is that the Dutch car has raced, as you quite rightly say, in the Dutch Supercar Challenge. H24 and their effort that ran uh, another demonstration uh, just last week in support of a mobility conference that uh, was held uh, at Le Mans. So it has run on the Le Mans circuit, albeit just the short uh, Bugatti circuit. Um, the answer in terms of the overall take is I don't know, but I will happily ask because we need to get ahead of this uh, this stuff. Um, the the car, I think, for what it is, reasonably pretty, has a very different soundtrack. And then Matthew Hawkins goes on to ask whether or not it will run as an exhibition car at this year's Le Mans. I would be surprised if it doesn't, is the honest answer. It will not, of course, be the first hydrogen-powered car to run such laps because the green GT, the initial car that looked a little bit like, like a uh, Hot Wheels car that eaten just a little bit too much sugar, uh, did run a couple of years ago on an exhibition lap that the car of course that was previously destined um, but failed to run as a garage 56 entrant in the race itself green gt by the way uh one of the building blocks behind the h24 initiative so lots going on at the moment with zero emissions um i just hope that our good friends at the aco uh haven't been too distracted by the travails of the hypercar regulations take their foot too much off the literal gas for uh the zero emissions formula that comes in not that long a time it's only about five years away uh for that but everything i'm hearing at the moment indicates that that is a reasonably healthy discussion and that is certainly uh something mp that that seems to be very much more aligned with the routes that the the automotive industry is currently taking the 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 motorsport industry as a whole it would be fair to say i think is struggling to catch up with the apocalyptic changes that are happening with the industry that services it with technology and vice versa 
and with finance. Uh, but zero emissions is clearly the next big thing and certainly the next big thing for uh, endurance racing and sports car racing. It's just a matter of whether or not we can catch up before the tidal wave of technology and, for that matter, politics kind of overwhelms us. There is a further um, uh, question, by the way, on H24. It comes from James Hewitt on Twitter. Uh, and he says it's questioning whether or not we will see any race action from the H24 prototype. Uh, well, you might recall, James, that there was initially a thought that we could see the car in the Michelin Le Mans Cup. I think you referenced that in your question. I've asked that question twice of late and have uh, had the, the person I'm asking the question just brush that off slightly. And what I think that means is, that car's not ready to race yet. Um, I don't think we should be too concerned about that. It is a technology demonstrator. I'd rather it did what it was supposed to do rather than us try to make a gimmick out of it and ruin somebody else's race. Uh, but I think we will be seeing more of that car and perhaps later iterations and updates of that car as the year and indeed the years go on. And quite right that we should. It's going to be really important for the health of some of the races that we, you and I, MP, and you out there hold dear. Did the video that they released, Graham, of the very brief clip that I saw of the car uh, walking through uh, Dunlop <laughs> at Le Mans, was that off-putting at all to you? And am I being a silly monkey by just looking at a short clip of a demonstration lap and thinking, huh, I know this is quote, and I'm making air quotes while I'm saying it, new technology and something new and all of that, but it looked like the slowest GTE AM car being driven by the most AM of AMs would have navigated that at a higher rate of speed therefore huh that's my takeaway am i being too harsh and judgy too prematurely uh slightly but i, th I think enough. i'm right i think i'm right that it was actually running passenger rides um uh, and i'm trying to think of the name of the gentleman concerned but uh, prominent uh, opinion former in France and world-class balloonist and adventurer, as I remember. Um, so certainly someone who knows about the the power of gas. But but the, the reality is, it is a tech demonstrator. It's not a race car. I think they've had to reel in their expectations from that car. What I would say is there were further conversations at Sebring about what happens next. Uh, you'll see some of that in an interview and some comments that we gathered from the uh, from the, the briefing that you sat in from Vincent Beaumanil, the sporting, sporting director of the ACO. And what he was telling us is that, yes, what the, uh, the, the latest change to the regulations for hypercar have actually allowed them to do is to give a performance window that is going to be more realistic for hydrogen-powered cars come 2024, 2025, and thereabouts. Uh, so I think what we're looking at at the moment is the potential for, you know, should it come that way, those big factory hybrid programs being at around the kind of race pace that the cars we're looking at for 2020, 2021 to be at leading the race. So, yes, you could, in theory at the moment, uh, get to the stage where um, you've got 
cars coming in with new technology that will be able to match the best that the current technology are currently allowed to. And then we move forward from there, you would presume. So what it does is it gives them the the potential not to have to have a separate class for new technology cars that they could race head to head with the top of the shop as we've got them for the next four or five years. I love it. I love it. And yeah, maybe I'm just being a, a, har- a harsh and judgy queen and I should it's not stop. Like, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not like you. I think it's you should just, just, just think about letting yourself down, letting all of us down, and we should just move on and say, say very little about it. Not that little. Okay, my bad. My, <laughs> sorry, my bad. No, and again, I, I, I fully get the, the, the you know, the journo rides or whatever, ride, media rides. It's just a part yeah, yeah. where I'm like, hey, it's great. new technology, and I love it. It's great, but it's still racing. And if it looks dog slow, you go, didn't we? Not great. The, did, I agree. Wasn't this Formula, the Formula E's thing where you go, hey, it's new and great, but... Wow, okay. Uh, boy. That, uh, but anyways, yes, I, I accept your assessment. I am bad, and I will stop speaking, <laughs> except for all of the words I'm going to continue to say through the rest of the episode. Uh, let's see. Hey, all right. You unearthed some good things, Mr. Goodwin, at the uh, little home of Janetta. Uh, oh, speaking yeah. with uh, the team principal, the man, the man in charge, Lawrence Tomlinson. So Kevin Payne has a follow-up here. He said, "Great inside interview with Lawrence." It says, "Sounds like mixed news with LMP3 being positive for the next set of regulations, but it didn't sound like anything firm for the brand's LMP1s for Spa nor next season." Or did I miss something? So knowing that some folks might not have read your piece uh, on DailySports.com, I know uh, there's a lot of firings. If you haven't listened, you're fired. But again, please come back next (laughs) week. Uh, Visit DailySportsCar.com. You might also check out our episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock that went up on Monday, I believe, this week, uh, where you spoke. You brought us some of the conversation station with Lawrence in audio form but uh, for those who haven't read the piece you might recap it a bit and uh, also help with Kevin's question it's it's you know you, you it's what it's an extension of that conversation that you had a little earlier in the show and we've had previously about how wonderful it is to go to race shops and see some of the wacky stuff that goes on there is never a dull moment uh, going to Ginetta not least because Lawrence keeps his personal car collection there and there's always something utterly fabulous this time it was a bright orange Ford Capri three liter s absolutely spectacular um, yes LMP3 one of the four manufacturers that have been given the license to do effectively the LMP3 Gen 2, that will be safety upgrades. It will be aero bodywork upgrades, and it will be a new engine and drivetrain. My belief is that we will see, the hope is that we will see at least um, visually the four new cars at Le Mans this year. They won't race. They won't, I don't believe they will run, but we will see them all on display at Le Mans this year. Um, that is, I believe, going to be a significant step forward for Ginetta, who, of course, were the first out of the box in LMP3 and do realize that certainly in terms of the way in which their cars were presented and the way in which their cars um, were engineered, as in particular in terms of weight, uh, that there was work to do. And there has been a lot of work done. That's LMP3 story for the moment. Also got the chance, by the way, to see the beautiful Acula 
supercar, the very first supercar from Ginetta in Lawrence Tomlinson's ownership. There will be no race version of that car. That will be a standalone road-going supercar and is sold out until 2021. Uh, which is fantastic news for them. But the big news for, I know, Weekend Sports Cars listeners was all around what's going on with the Ginetta G60 LTP1, the LMP1 uh, uh, car that's raced at the Le Mans 24 Hours last year with the Mechachrome engine. Uh, chronically underperformed, particularly to do with the engine. Um, very, very far down on power. Uh, but actually had rave reviews from drivers about handling, uh, has since been retrofitted with the AER Turbo V6 engine, has tested in the hands of, amongst others, Alex Brundle, who I think told the week, uh, sorry, inside the sports car paddock a few weeks ago um, how encouraged he was with the form of that car. And yes, uh, on the shop floor, uh, factory floor for Ginetta, two Ginetta G60s uh, in prep, uh, AER engines en route for one of them. Uh, the plan is that one of those cars will test at the end of this month uh, in Spain, three days with AER and with a driver that you will have come across in your recent past in open wheel racing. And I'll share that name with you Willie offline. Willie Ribs. Definitely not Willie. No. Okay. Uh, but uh, there is still hope. Um, Lawrence tells me that we might see a Janetta G60 at uh, Spa. The outstanding issue appears to be the that both cars have had all of their um, uh, their entry fees for the FIWC paid. That's one full season car, one race by race car, who I, which I believe has um, fully paid up as well. Uh, but there is the matter of. Uh, the cars not turning up for those races and so the regulations go there are fees let's call them what they are fines levied for non-appearance that comes to a fairly significant sum it's only a six-figure euro sum which in the state of our current economy also means it's a six-figure uk sum Um, and i'm just going to say this this is just the height of stupidity here Knowing, uh, knowing, the, and I realize rules and this and yep. signing up and you put your name yep. on a car. I get all that. And this is, I'm a person where two tries to say, hey, if you're obligated to it, then that's what you should do. I just try and look at the WEC's greater issues at hand right now and yep. ask myself, okay, what's more important? Uh, keeping out a, a manufacturer and uh, going forward with a smaller grid for something pithy like a, I almost call it second generation, fine. Uh, yep. And again, you might ex- drill into that a little bit more for folks who don't know the rule, but this just, I stare at this and go, boy, whack, you're not looking all that strong and you're finding a way to weaken yourself over what I would think is not a life-changing amount of money. Yeah, and this is the sound of me not agree, uh, disagreeing with you in any way whatsoever. What I don't know, because I've not yet had the chance to ask, and I will be asking that when I speak to one or two of the guys at Paul Ricard for the LMS uh, prologue test next week, and then the start of the European Le Mans series, uh, not this coming weekend, but the following weekend, is 
exactly where are those fines levied and who gets them. It is distinctly possible that is an FIA regulation and that those fines uh, go to the FIA, which, by the way, remember, is not a profit-making body, but does then use those fines for all sorts of other things, including campaigning and various good works and in no way whatsoever first-class travel or very expensive hotel rooms. Um, but the, it does need – the question I think needs to be asked. I don't disagree with you in the slightest. My view, and I'll express it very clearly, is, guys, this top class needs all the support it can get. It needs it now. It needs it next year. It certainly needs it the year after that, moving into what should be, but is yet to be confirmed to be the hypercar era, and to casually – toss away a manufacturer that has been prepared to actually invest. And I know what they've invested in it, and it is a very considerable sum. If I were Lawrence Tomlinson, I wouldn't be massively impressed. Please, please, let's not make the mistakes of history and put a program to the sword just because a minor red mark in the ledger incurred by somebody else uh, needs an answer to it. Um, I know what I'd rather in those books, I'd rather there be an entry fee with a Ginetta or two or more in 2019, 2020. For that to happen, the cars have got to run, and in particular, they've got to race. Uh, Lawrence, I have to tell you, was extremely gracious about his attitude about not getting the car to Le Mans. He gets it. He's disappointed, but he gets it. I think he's a little less impressed that they're not going to be given the opportunity to go to a race where he's prepared to front up the ante to make that happen um, for the want of taking another six-figure sum yeah. out of the pocket. I, I'm disappointed. I'm, I am disappointed. By the way, I got the chance to see the cars bare naked again for the first time since I was there when the first car was being built up. There is a picture um, of that scene with both cars just about visible. There's a, a car in bare carbon to the foreground that if you look between the workstations, you will see uh, the silver car that was on the motor show stand in Geneva. Um, there's all sorts of things cooking at the moment at uh, Ginetta, and I think we might just do a little bit of a drip drip down through the next coming weeks and months as to some of the ideas that they've got to do with that technology and other things that will emerge from the, uh, well, the most successful industrial park in the world in LMP3. Uh, the reason I say that, Ginetta and Team LNT won the European Championship in uh, 2015. The European Le Mans Series Championship was then won twice in consecutive years uh, by the United Autosports Group, who until June will still be across the road from Ginetta um, on the very same industrial park. So three years out of three teams based on the same industrial park in Yorkshire won the European Championship. That's pretty exceptional. It is. And let me ask a question that isn't necessarily tied to racing at all, sure. but you mentioned tossing away something really good here over trying to grab a little bit of extra money would those who toss away great ideas would those be called tossers they they would be okay. it would be a it would be a fair description of the act not necessarily their personalities and indeed their credentials I, i'm really keen here to unpick why that's become um i mean you know lawrence i've known him for years 
and Lawrence will get to the point. He is, he is an astonishing individual in terms of the way in which, like a lot of entrepreneurs, like Don Panos, makes things happen. But exactly like Don, and by the way, those two were incredible friends for many, many years. Remember, Lawrence won Le Mans in a panel. Yep. Yeah, and um, I the, the, the latter years uh, of, of seeing Don, I would normally see Don in the company of uh, Lawrence Tomlinson uh, at the Le Mans 24 Hours. And those two were firm friends. And there was, a, there was a huge amount of commonality in terms of the way in which they did business and the way in which uh, they interacted with, uh, you know, with officialdom. And that generally tended to be characterized by astounding, laser-like genius in terms of bringing ideas to the fore, followed pretty rapidly by massive sense of humor failures when actually uh, a red line was crossed. Uh, much the same kind of characteristics. Uh, you know, Lawrence can, as can uh, very many people with an entrepreneurial uh, outlook, be a somewhat Marmite character to some. I find him utterly fascinating. Um, I have to tell you, I've read all sorts of things about the, the Ginetta LMP1 program. I've spoken to literally everybody involved in decision-making process here. And from everything I've heard, Mr. Tomlinson is a bit of a hero here. Step back and let his geniuses do the work. Uh, you know, went in and asked the questions when things started to slip and slide. They have been commercially very unlucky indeed um, in terms of the, the way in which the rule set went, the, the fact that they didn't get the customers they wanted, the fact that the customer they did get, which let's not forget in manner, was a big name customer. Um, and that just did not work out. They're now rather trapped by the rule set. I suspect that's a rule set that the uh, the powers that be will be looking at and thinking, that's really stumped us in terms of if something goes wrong for a team midway through the season, we lose cars. Um, you know, there is no way back into LMP1. But, um, but he throughout here, I have to say, has been pretty much a paragon of virtue uh, in terms of the way that he's dealt with his people, in terms of the way that he's dealt with the powers that be um, in uh, in racing, whether or not that would be an agreement made by the, uh, the the team he did business with that I'm afraid ultimately were not able to come up with uh, the money to back up their commercial promises, I'm sure might be up for debate, but that's not part of that uh, that little cocktail that I'm as party to as the rest of it. That this This is an organization that deserves a chance. They've been fully supportive of LMP3 from the very start. Frankly, we wouldn't have an LMP3 without Ginetta. Uh, that that much, by the way, has been relayed to me not just by Lawrence, but by Jacques Nicolet as well. We would not have committed had Ginetta not come forward and started to get numbers of orders for LMP3. Without that, Ligier wouldn't have happened. Without that, LMP3 wouldn't have happened. Give them a break. Let's see the car race. If it's good, then we'll all be backslapping each other and saying what a great decision that was. If it's not, then you know what? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. But let's give him a chance to race. That, my dear friend, was a mighty fine use of the official Cooper Tire branded Justice Brothers sponsored Weekend Sports Car Soapbox. So <laughs> that, we're all good there. So we've got half an hour or so left in this episode. Okay. I am going to grab a few 
Go for it. Highly awesome Weck Aslam Echo questions. Then we have a bunch of great general and fun. So what I don't want to do is run out of time for those. So let me just uh, pick and choose a few to close this chapter here. Uh, why don't we go with, and we've actually have a couple uh, on this front, and we might be able to cover off a few all at once. Uh, we'll go with Jeff. Jeff Easterling's question says, I'm genuinely curious as to where the line is drawn in stuff like the Aurus, A-U-R-U-S, uh, and Alpine regarding uh, brands regarding P2 badging and involvement. Team quote, sponsorship can make sense, I suppose. But once you start rebranding the actual car name and designation, it feels a bit weird, no, uh, doesn't it? And then we've had a couple others who just are asking, is the Aurus uh, rebellion thing real? What? I don't say what's going on with this because we know. But for those who don't, tell us about the Aurus angle and the... Is it too much to just say, hey, this Areca P2 or lead pick whatever brand, but in a class that the FAWC says is not DPI, no manufacturers <laughs> at all, uh, isn't it a little bit weird to at least let them take the manufacturer branding name rights? Uh, what do you think here? Uh, yes, it is weird. And, you know, the question has been asked and asked repeatedly about uh, the one that broke the dam here, which, of course, was Signatech Alpine. They named their cars going back many years now, back to the Orica 03, the old open top cars, um, through the 05 and now into the 07. And initially, that was done on the basis that Alpine might well have been a brand, but they weren't building cars. Well, you know what? Now they are, and they're still on the side of an LMP2 car. And I can recall having conversations with more than one LMP2 team owner asking how they managed to do that, to which my answer was, well, let's be blunt. If they've managed to do it, there has to be a way for you to do it. And if that's a way forward for you commercially, then you absolutely should go and ask the question. And it would appear that Roman Rusinov and his backers have done exactly that. Arus, for those that um, have been under a rock for the last couple of weeks, haven't read um, the stories they've been doing the rounds. Arus is the limousine brand. It is a Russian limousine brand uh, that builds, amongst other things, the presidential limo for Vladimir Putin. Form an orderly queue here for your uh, now slightly out-of-date Donald Trump jokes. But uh, they have launched that car, that car and a couple of derivatives of the car um, for export sale in a number of markets. And indeed, I believe uh, Lawrence Tomlinson was telling me that the car was on the next stand to them um, at the Geneva Motor Show. So what has happened is that the fees have been paid, and I'm told that fee is of the order of 300,000 of uh, euros, um, to basically re-homologate, in this case, the Orica, but it could just as easily be another LMP2 chassis as the Arus 01. Now, what that looks like in reality is you can put the badge on the car. There are two chassis plates. One is an Orica plate. One, in this case, will be an Arus plate. And in the case of the Alpines, there is indeed uh, an Alpine chassis plate on that car. My guess is that that uh, fee is well, I'm not going to say equally divided because I've got no clue, but that will be some of that will be going into the corporate pockets of the fabulous Hugh DeShonak and friends, and some of it will be going into the ACO uh, coffers. And that's fine by me. Uh, my view has long been that we missed a massive trick in international sports cars by not having an easy way in for an aspirant manufacturer. If this is what provides that, 
if actually we have to suffer the sights of Roman Rusinov turning up to races and a massive Arabus limousine, if that's what we've got to do to get a little bit more corporate backing into sports car racing, that's fine by me. It does not give him a performance advantage. It is an absolutely bog-standard Orica 07 Gibson. If the branding helps him in his home marketplace and elsewhere, that's great. If the same is true for the Signature Alpine team, that's great. If this leads to a tidal wave of small manufacturers coming forward and branding Ligiers and Delaras and Oricas, that's great. It'll be slightly more confusing for Johnny Palmer and I calling the uh, the European Le Mans series uh, TV broadcast. But you know what? We're big boys and we will we'll deal with that. But it is all to do with, I suspect, the fact that the crack of the door was left open uh, when uh, Alpine moved to be a mainstream manufacturer, as they do now with the, the pretty uh, A110 coupe, that the fact that that was still left open that they could still do that despite the fact that they were a live manufacturer and that Arus is the next in line. I suspect they won't be the last. This is my singular hope, Graham Goodwin, and I am I'm praying that you and your influence within the WC will pay off here to make my dream come true. If we do not have an Aorus pace car, intervention car. I oh. want to see every field led by a long stretch Russian limousine. This <laughs> must happen. This would be the best visual ever. And while I'm pulling this out of my behind, I think it's actually would be correct. At least the first time it was seen. I think that would be something that breaks out of racing and actually hits you know, sports highlight shows and otherwise of having a big ass Russian limousine <laughs> leading <laughs> prototypes and GTs. Uh, and think about this, if it's a big crash, yeah, again, obviously we hope no one's hurt, but instead of just being able to put one driver into one, you know, safety vehicle and take them in theory, you could kind of pack them all in there. So I'm just saying this might not be as bad of an idea. No, it's a bad idea. The, the, the official pace car. I want to see Yannick Dalmas drifting one of those in the wet. That's what I would like to see. I think that might be brief and might be loud uh, is, is the one thing. One of the quick things Stuart Hart also asked about Rebellion Racing and the Aris project. I think, Stuart, that refers to the fact that they retweeted or tweeted out the video. I don't know. There is certainly no Rebellion branding on the car. There are pictures of the car uh, on Delhi Sports Car um, testing at Paul Ricard. Uh, I suspect because they retweeted on April the 1st that they might have been just pulling Roman's leg a little bit and causing a little bit of, you know, confusion, a uh, little bit of a kind of a confounding factor there. But uh, again, something we'll be asking at Paul Record next week. It's going to be a very, very busy week indeed with literally dozens of prototypes and not a few uh, GT cars on track for LMS and Michelin Le Mans Cup. Looking forward to it immeasur immeasurably and I'm sure um, Roman Rusinov is going to have a grin as wide as his face um, and from what I've been hearing from what the pace has been coming from that car in the hands of Jean-Claude Utet, um, uh, Jean-Eric Verne and we'll be seeing Norman Nato in that car for a couple of races to sub for Jean-Eric Verne uh, they are undoubtedly going to be back in the league of potential champions and in their case defend, uh, defending champions of the LMS I'm going to go with a final 
Weck Aslam Echo question, and there are a number of excellent ones here as well. Robert Northway, Johnny Austin, and Rob Chalmers as well. Please, as we ask, uh, resubmit them if we don't get to them and you really want them answered. So going to pass over a couple just in the interest of time and knowing we have two other categories to get through. So we'll close here uh, on your world with our pal Nick Dovniak, who says, with all the car-car slash hypercar regulation talks, have we heard from Jim Glickenhaus and how these might affect uh, that entrance program or anticipated program? Great question, Nick. I've been meaning to call Jim and just do a little catch-up, but uh, we know he said that he's in, he's going to play, but that was also before some of the more recent developments have come out. Any word out of the uh, the fun and feisty American? I have an infrequent um, correspondence with Jim. Uh, I am long overdue a catch-up with some of the detail he shared with me. I can tell you that he is in direct contact with the ACO about their project. The shape of that project, I think, has shifted as regards... Uh, you know, in, in common with what's been going on with the, the uh, regulations. He, like everybody else, is waiting for the uh, revised draft regulations. And, and Jim, remember, now has two options. He has the option initially revealed, which is the 007 uh, hypercar, okay, albeit road-going car, but based on a prototype racing chassis that he shared with the world uh, some months ago. So that was the initial um, uh option that was clearly favored because that was all he was allowed to do he does still though however have the road going cars that they, that operate under the glickenhaus name the 003 that we've seen um the scg 003 we've seen racing in the vln and for that matter at kota in the 24 hours there and the new 004 car that is uh, soon to go into production which is due to beget a gt3 uh, derivative and my belief is that they are currently looking into whether or not they might want to go down the route of a racing version of a road-going hypercar. Uh, quite exactly how that might work, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think there's some interesting stuff to come from Jim. The latter way, of course, would be the more financially efficient in terms of the actual structure of the car, quite whether or not they can get to the performance levels they would need to with that package remains to be seen. But, you know, it is a rocket ship um, in a field of GT3 cars, clearly reeled back dramatically, uh, powered in racing terms in its VLN form by uh, a slightly, and I mean slightly detuned version of the HPD LMP2 engine uh, in the back of that car. So still think there's things to come from Glickenhaus. Am I yet putting their names down on a confirmed list for 2019, sorry, 2020, 2021? No, I'm not. But he's made it very clear that he has every intention of doing it. And he, like Lawrence Tomlinson, unlike Don Pallas before, do have the reputation of doing the things that they say they will do speaking of doing things we say we will do where do you say we should head my friend either general or fun as we start to wind down this episode 
Well, let's let's uh, see whether or not I can do a little bit of a quick uh, run through two or three of the general ones and, and some quick answers to some quick questions. Flo Loves Racing on Twitter asks if there's any news on the VLN regulations after the first race. You may remember there was some unhappiness amongst a number of the teams about uh, power restrictions on the GT3 cars, SP9 cars in VLN money. Um, or did the teams and drivers think it was okay during VLN 1? There was some commentary about them lacking straight line speed one of the uh, the top uh, GT3 drivers making it clear he'd been overtaken on the straight by a TCR car. It was only the GT3 cars that have seen these power restrictions. I have not heard of anybody else suggesting they might uh, walk away uh, from VLN as a result. But let's watch this space at the moment. It is only the Wockenspiegel, Monschau, Ferraris who've gone across. Uh, we're at the Mugello 24H series race um, and we'll do, I believe, Spa 24 hours. That's what they're looking to do. Um, and then Frickadelli Racing, who has said that they will walk away after this year's 24 hours of the Nürburgring if it's not addressed. I have not heard of any other team, although Christopher Meese has made it clear he doesn't want to race in those circumstances for Audi, uh, the Nürburgring. Not heard from any other team that has suggested that they will walk away just yet. Um, quick one here from uh, Josh Barrett. Hi, Josh. Uh, what's worse, maximum stint limits or minimum pit stop time? All of it. Um, I'll say it loud. I'll say it clear. It's all bullshit. Um, it needs to stop. Uh, we, you know, it's uh, anything that removes the element of strategy, the element of cleverness, the element of using what's already a pretty specific, specific rule set. Anything that decides that they want to add something else in to to dumb it down to make it more more vanilla, to my mind is nonsensical. It is basically putting the intellect as a rule maker ahead of the intellect as a competitor. It's competition, damn it. Let's just get on and do it. I hate, loathe, despise that part of the rule set that means that the geniuses on pit row on, on the on the pit uh, perches and the fabulous uh, abilities of the guys and girls in the pit garages is it negated in any way whatsoever. I hate it, hate it, hate it. You want to grab a couple? I would love to grab at least one, if not two or three, and I'm just going to try and find a couple things that uh, might be fun. Let's go with F&R Racing, uh, who asks, should the California 8-hour be moved to the same IMSA weekend at Monterey, WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca? said that Sebring show that combining races is exciting and lots and brings lots of attention. I love the spirit behind that. Only issue here is that Sebring, where we had IMSA and the ACO uh, slash WEC in the house, those are partner organizations. Uh, money is exchanged, hands are shaken, and there's all kinds of efforts to work together as partners with the California 8-Hour being a product of Stefan Rattel's SRO organization, which is the one and only direct competitor to IMSA in North America in the professional sports car space, I'd say there's darn near zero chance of that happening there. We can look back in time and say that, yes, there actually was a, a period in the American Le Mans series, for example, where World the uh, then what Speed World Challenge was on the calendar at many events, uh, both at Monterey and name many other venues. Would say that at that time, though, there was such a massive gap in terms of awareness, fandom, just 
everything that ALMS was just the not only the headliner but just by miles and so having the SCCA there uh, even though it was a, a SCCA World Challenge Series although it was a quote rival wasn't a rival there there was no chance of anything being taken away from IMSA I'm sorry the American Le Mans Series I still don't believe that there would be anything to take away from IMSA if the SRO's eight-hour were to be added, Graham. But I do think that since we have the SRO and their Blancpain World Challenge GT America Championship now venturing into a space that the old World Challenge never did, which is kind of sort of endurance racing with their Sprint X content, there is actual marketplace uh, confrontation here. So I would just say that if I were the folks at IMSA, I would say there's no way in hell the SRO is going to be anywhere near what we do because since they are trying to bring over GT3, GT4 content uh, that IMSA has in its WeatherTech Championship and the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series, just too big of a conflict uh, between rivals here. So where else can we go? Uh, Josh Barrett, what's worse, maximum stint limits? Oh, just minimum, Oh, I apologize. Uh, I forgot to line that one out. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 where should we go? The purple 60 in Creventic. Oh, yes. Yes, our pal Third Wheel Racing, who we met and sat with at Sebring. Uh, should purple 60 be an international thing after watching the 12 hours of Mugello? I feel it should be. I'm actually just going to throw that to you because I didn't watch it and I can't tell you what purple 60 is, but I love the look of it. It sounds like some sort of really bad vape. Uh, <laughs> product that people should not use. So it's 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 code sixty. Okay. It's code, so it's code sixty. And yes, I think you know we have seen. I think in recent years, particularly as regards race neutralization and safety measures, far more common sense about adopting things in whole or in parts that were quote not invented here. And I know from talking to a number of the significant um, individuals involved in maintaining safety, amongst some Eduardo Freitas, but not just Eduardo, some of the guys at SRO and Creventic, and for that matter at IMSA as well. And they're looking. They're looking to see what might fit. It's not always as easy as it looks. It does depend, of course. Um, on the the flavour and the the mixture of the uh, of the racing uh, classes that you've actually got as to whether or not you know various measures might have um, a significant impact on the quality of the racing. Um, I'm not particularly a lover of the way that it's managed with IMSA, for instance, uh, but it does create very often uh, very close racing throughout a long period of time. It's certainly been a part of the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona for as long as I've been attending it. Um, but yes, I think uh, it, it's got real potential in a whole a raft of other racing and not just in mixed class sports car racing. The reality is it comes down to one thing. Is that rule going to be respected by the people on track? If it is, it will work. Um, you've then got to manage what happens down pit lane. You've got to manage what happens in terms of the fueling. And there's some very interesting stuff that's been learned through purely through experience of at times getting it wrong or someone finding a loophole 
And that's always been part of racing. And I would be a little more relaxed about someone getting away with it once. Uh, if you can close a loophole a second time, you know, yeah, you might feel as if someone's been laughing up the sleeve at you, but it's only going to happen uh, on the odd one or two occasions before you manage to, to close that staple door. Um, yes, is the answer. That's and anything else that makes a difference to keeping the people uh, who might be involved in that incident or involved in clearing up that incident safer is a good thing by me. At least, yeah, I was just going to say, at least looking at the rest of the generals, mm-hmm. those are kind of Graham Goodwin specials. So, And I'm also realizing we might need, might need to push beyond our self-imposed hour and 30 minutes for this show because there's just... Uh, well, let's, let's grab just a couple of... A couple of really quick ones. Eric Sheen asks, after the recent upgrade from Dunlop, any word for the teams about the balance between them and Michelin in LMS and FIWC? Uh, just to make this one clear, there is a rule that says you can only have three declared um, construction compound of dry weather tyres in a single WEC season. Now, I believe that means what we've got now will last to the end of the Le Mans 24 hours and for the remainder of the year for the ELMS as well. What happened last year is that Michelin came out mid-season with their third declared tyre. That showed really good pace um, in, on a, a number of the cars that ran it, uh, notably perhaps the Panis Bartas competition Ligier, and in particular in the hands of Will Stevens, showed real pace such that uh, United Autosport switched mid-season from Dunlop to Michelin and won the last two races. Uh, we're, we're testing those tyres again, as were Dunlop with their new tyres at Portimao after the final race of the LMS season. I had a quiet chat with a couple of the Dunlop engineers who were basically going, well, we've still got one up our sleeves and we've got a few options of the direction we can go with that. And we'll choose to go with that when we got them ready. They lost customers, certainly over the closed season. They've gained one back. Uh, last week with Paris Bartes competition switching. Um, the one team that I absolutely know did back-to-back testing between the two was G-Drive Racing with what we now know is going to be called the Aris. And they chose to go Dunlop. And we then saw what happened at Sebring, which is an altogether different challenge for the tyres. Smart money says Dunlop may be the smarter choice. Sometimes smart doesn't work when you expose it to all sorts of different tracks uh, back in Europe. I think we'll know a lot more within the next week or so. Beyond that. Any more you want to grab? Let's have a look. Uh, It's another quick one on Ginetta from Richard Dastardly. Can we uh, expand a Ginetta question to their GT programs? Notice there's a lot fewer G55s around this year. It's getting to be a less fresh car, shall we say. There is one new Ginetta G55 program that's just been unveiled, and that is that there's going to be a car racing in the VLN and at the Nürburgring 24 hours in GT4. That's going to be interesting. Uh, Charlie Robertson, um, factory driver, of course, Ginetta over many years now, will be a part of that. Uh, He and a couple of his co-drivers are going through their ring permit, as indeed is Martin Brundle, for something you'll be hearing about later this year. Um, But the... Uh, the answer there is we'll see a Ginetta out there. 
No immediate plans that I'm aware of to replace that car. I think at the moment they're putting their efforts, their time, and for that matter, their financial resources into their current projects. That means the Akula supercar. It does mean the LMP1 and the LMP3 programs. But I have no doubts that when they do decide what they're going to do with GT cars, it'll be something else that's a bit of a kind of a game changer for them. No problem, by the way, with their race car production. Uh, I believe that most of their one-mate championships, of which they have four, are either heavily subscribed or sold out. So Ginetta's production of race cars over the winter has been pretty furious. Uh, they're now going to be going into consolidation of the programs that they've actually got on the factory floor. Can I just mention that as a somewhat larger human being, I've always looked at the Ginetta G55, appreciated its form and shape, but always just had stuck in my mind that, good Lord, you need to be very skinny and not particularly tall to fit into that. I love it. It's so cute. It just looks like someone took a balloon and then squeezed it really hard in the middle so it was super narrow and then kind of smashed it down at the top as well. It's like, boy, uh, you know, most of these for sale sports cars, something that does have customers in mind, usually, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just built for one type of person and Pruitt, you ain't one of them. But anyway, well, Lawrence was reminding me, um, he actually chauffeured me around Ulton Park in uh, quite an early Ginetta G50, which is the predecessor, um, the uh, rather plainer aerodynamically version of the G55, but not an ordinary G50. It was a full electric G50. And that was about, I want to say 2007, 2008, um, and reasonably impressive, you know, and good performance from that car. Uh, so, you know, it is something that small manufacturers, too, can actually get stuck into, whether or not that would be for road use or for motorsport use at the, the front end. And forget, uh, neither should we forget that uh, in the days when Lawrence was involved in the Zytec business, that we actually had a batch of those cars, race cars and a couple of road cars, with Zytec V8 engines in them, um, which is, you know, extraordinary things. They raced at the time with... Uh, I think I'm right, uh, with either GT2 or certainly earlier GT3 cars were not disgraced in terms of their available pace. So then, uh, I mean, the, the one thing about companies like Ginetta and, as I say, like Panos, for that matter, never dull. There's always something going on. There's always something barking mad on a CAD screen somewhere. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why it's always great fun to go there. Well, that also explains, knowing about the electric G50 ride, why they had that Toyota Prius out back with the uh, battery <laughs> taken out it up on jack. So now we understand. All right, my friend, let's move. Let's move to close our show with fun. And we have lots of fun questions here. Where shall we start among the ha-ha-hee-hee and yuckety-yucks? Let's start with our good mate Baxter asking what's our favourite off-brand GT2 GTE program for the days back when it wasn't that long ago when the minnows could actually afford to jump in. Uh, says he loves the AGR Lotus, both for the livery and because he felt so bad for AGR being stuck with an iconic brand in their dumpster fire years. Hmm. Let's see. Well, well, you, I know you've previously talked about the uh, the fabulous Panos. I've talked about the TVR, the Spiker, the Morgan. You know all of the, those great things that actually uh, come to come to mind. There's another Morgan. It actually comes predates that. It's back into the GT1 
days with the McLarens and uh, the Panos. But uh, that was when Morgan were basically beginning to try to reinvent themselves. Before the Aero 8 came forward, they'd been stuck for years with a very outdated product range. And there was a uh, Morgan Plus 8, which hid beneath its shapely skin um, the more advanced chassis that would become the Aero 8. It was known as um, Big Blue. The car still exists. It was actually running at Le Mans uh, last year in the Global Insurance Legends uh, demo. Um, a fabulous thing, not very pacey, but I have a vivid memory of that car in a BPR race at Silverstone being overtaken either side by a McLaren F1 on one side. And I think it was a Mercedes CLK GTR on the other side at very high speed indeed. And to say that that gave this guy a moment would be an understatement. Fabulous, fabulous stuff. And yes, I miss them in no days. I miss them badly. Baxter, I would say I had an affinity because they had a very home built look to them. Uh, just some little agricultural machining on some parts and pieces, but the uh, the Ford GTR Mark, whatever they called them, the uh, the ones run by Robertson Racing. Uh, I know Black Swan Racing had one here in the ALMS around uh, about 2008 or so, and those ran for a couple of years. Robertson, I think, was the the primary ones doing that. And I think Oliver Kuttner, maybe, and I could be getting the person wrong, was was one of the persons to spearhead that. I think Kevin Doran was involved. It was it yep. was just to me what GT two, that second tier non-factory GT category in very general terms should always represent. Hey, here's a cool road car. We have a passion for it. We might have an aftermarket business that supports that thing and we build headers and all kind this is our sales thing and you know we want to build a racing version of it so we bought one and we converted it and it meets the rules and we can go play with it uh so that that ford stands out as one of the prime examples of that also thinking in that general time frame uh the the crazy lou gelati did the same thing with one of his uh, one of his Corvettes. So he built what a, I think it was a Riley chassis, or Riley was involved in that as well in some way. Uh, GT2 version of that, and the car wasn't crazy uh, successful. But they also didn't have a ton of money. But nonetheless, it was something where you know he'd been doing that for a while in Trans Am and uh, was racing uh, that model. I think almost the same exact type car in uh, World Challenge GT and decided, hey, okay, let's go play in the ALMS a little bit. So just that thing, that's the thing that I miss about today. And you can look at some other examples of what, actually, Anders Krohn and I were just speaking about, uh, crazy Joel Feinberg and his primetime race group, the Dodge Viper competition. Viper. Right? And so that, I think, was already a GT3-ish model at the time. So upgrading it to GT2 wasn't too big of a step, but... It was just that, Andrew, honestly, the ability to say, hey, this is the core of our business and or it's just the mark that I love the most. Let me buy it. I'm going to throw a cage in it if it doesn't already have one. Do the things the rules say, the rules say that I have to do, but the rules aren't so crazy that it's prohibitive. So, uh, but yeah, I'd say the Ford probably stands out as the perfect uh, road to race version of a GT2. Uh 
lest we forget, by the way, that car with Andrea and, and uh, David and David Murray did score a podium. Yes. At Le Mans. It was awesome. It was all kinds of awesome. Uh, let's see. Let's go. To, all right, here we go. We had a couple of folks on the on the April Fool stuff, and I had some folks <laughs> were really grumpy at me, which I don't really understand about. Uh, I guess you could say either reposting the one that uh, we did last year with the help of uh, DSC's Matt Fernandez and also our pal Andy Blackmore, who did the uh, LMP1 Halo. Uh, and I just did a little update saying, still waiting to hear if this is going to be adopted. Some folks, <laughs> I think many, most folks enjoyed it, but there were some who were just really grumpy. Anyways. Um, we have both Jonathan Wu and our pal Andy Blackmore, who has sent in. Uh, given that most April Fool pranks have been well played out over the years, what is the best car or racing-related Fool prank you have seen? And we also have Jonathan, who said, what is your worst uh, April Fool's uh, thing that you know you didn't think anyone was going to believe, believe it, but somehow people uh, still fell for it. And he says, hashtag me personally. Thumbs up. We're, I'm, I'm always going to read your question if you use a hashtag me personally. Uh, is last year's Delta Wing TS050 um, for him was the, the best one that he said, there's no way people are going to believe it, but he, they did. He said five of his pals fell for it. Uh, and he also says he's surprised to see that you and I didn't have our usual yep. fun on April 1st. So a couple of good things in there. Okay, well, a couple of things. Uh, you're absolutely right. I didn't. I'll explain in a moment why I didn't uh, this year, but uh, nothing sinister about it whatsoever. Tends to be the ones you enjoy, the ones that we've had. We've had some crackers down through the years, and yes, I enjoy the Toyota, the Volvo DPI uh, from a couple of years back with Dan Hounsell's uh, skills attached to it. That was an absolute corker. The one that stands out for me, I think, will always be uh, the flying TVR. There's, uh, there's Marcus Potts, uh, who photoshopped the roll center TVR um, at Dingledale, uh, of blessed memory, in uh, at Brands Hatch. Not the two or three inches off the ground that it actually was, but about two or three feet on. It was one of the most perfect Photoshop jobs I have ever seen. And still now, a decade and a half and more later, uh, that picture still uh, appears all over the web, all over the world, um, reported as fact. That's a kind of, wow, hashtag look at that. Um, that one is my absolute favorite. As to why I didn't this year, I did have one ready, which I'm not going to share with you because I might just run it next year. Um, but uh, it's a it's a family matter. We were it's Mother's Day in the UK on the Sunday. Uh, my mum, God bless her, uh, now uh, lives in a care home. She's not in the best of health. And I met up with my siblings. I have six siblings and just my siblings uh, to say goodbye to our family home because our family home is going to go and pay for mum's care bills. So that's what we were doing. And I decided pretty rapidly on arrival that I was simply going to switch off for two or three days. So that's why um, it is the absolute reason why. And by the time we actually got to April 1st morning, which is Monday morning, as I was on the way to see uh, Lawrence Tomlinson at Janetta, I just thought, what do I do? Nothing or something kind of slightly half cock. And I decided just give this one a bit of a rest this year. So that's the reason why. Um, uh, a happy weekend, a very, very happy weekend with my mum. God bless her on fabulous form. 
And I would say a similar thing for me, Jonathan, just it was a matter of time and a lot of things not converging. Last year, I uh, did not have three back-to-back race weekends in uh, March to uh, impede progress. Uh, we'll mention that the one idea that I did have, it just there wasn't enough time for it. And it's the the race car driver par excellence, that being Michael Avenatti, a uh, person who <laughs> <laughs> has threatened to sue me over a story he didn't like, and I know threatened to sue many others, uh, knowing that he was has just at least recently what in the past week was arrested, he's out on bail, but arrested uh, for alleged extortion, uh, an extortion scheme to get money out of the massive international uh, sporting and apparel manufacturer Nike. Uh, I I had thoughts, but it just didn't have time because it happens just right before uh, April 1st to see if one of our artist friends could draw up a Nike-sponsored entry uh, for the 24 hours of Le Mans and announce that Avenatti uh, would be returning to Le Mans where he competed, what, I think with JMW last? Um, he did, yeah. yeah. I'm forgetting his exact driver lineup, but uh, yeah, so at least the thought that I had, that would have been great. Great, but again, it would have led to another threat of lawsuit uh, would have been uh, Michael <laughs> announcing uh, his return to racing in a Nike-sponsored race car. Uh, so it probably, for my own sake, I'm glad that didn't quite happen. Um, should say, should say, one I did thoroughly enjoy, and I sat there and tittered as I watched it was from our good friends Sean and Ryan dinner with racers with oh, their goodness. racing. They're just, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to watch there. You realized it wasn't going to be entirely serious, but uh, it did take me quite some time to get all that coffee off the screen. No, um, it, brilliant uh, but by excellent them. stuff. Brilliant work by them. I would recommend you uh, you definitely check out the video that they have put. You've probably already seen it. We can assume that, Graham, that our dear listeners are just the types to have seen it and loved it. So uh, we'll just go to Andy's thing real quick. Uh, Andy's question on the theme, uh, or maybe, I don't know, might even be uh, Jonathan's. The one that I bit hard on, and I just, again, I felt so stupid, Probably six, seven years ago. Don't remember the exact year, but it was, I was sitting at the Long Beach Grand Prix. Might have been Saturday morning, Sunday morning, whatever it was when it happened to be April 1st. And saw a story come out from my friend Lynn Hunting, who's a longtime barrier reporter based in or around uh, Laguna Seca and very close with the administration there. Super close. She's she's always had the pulse as to what's happening. And there's always rumors of IndyCar going back to Laguna Seca. And so she posted a story that, uh, you know, said IndyCar um, is, you know, whatever, expecting to confirm its return to you know, Laguna Seca, so on and so forth, had some quotes in there. And I was pretty close with then IndyCar CEO Randy Bernard, and I shot him a text, uh, and I might have even sent taken a photo of it and sent that to him in the text, kind of a... You know, what the hell? Because I think just a few days before, he and I had had a conversation about potential venues. However it played out, Graham, I'm sitting there Saturday morning, Sunday morning in the media center of the Long Beach Grand Prix. Uh, Lynn's story hits my inbox, and I'm just livid, livid, going, Why, Randy, what the hell? 
And so I sent him a text, which was probably a little heated, uh, more or less along the lines of, what the hell, man? Uh, with a photo of, of, you know, just a screen capture of her story. And he just sent back the, the best, most succinct response. Look at the date, idiot. And it was April 1st. And I'm like, oh my God, how did you fall for that, Pruitt? So yeah, that's the one. I hate I, I hate moments like that. But then I should also be honest and tell you, they happen almost every day. So I just come <laughs> to accept them. Um, let's see, where should we go? Uh, da -da. Uh, weirdest, yeah, let's go to Stacy UK, who's asking about weirdest reason to miss a race. Uh, what is the most elaborate or unusual reason that you've heard for a driver or, uh, another team member to miss a race? Do you have any ones there, Graham? If not, I can uh, throw one in. It, it's, it's slightly weird. It's unfortunate, really. Fred Fatia, um, who at the time was... Person? It is a real, real person. A gentleman driver was one of the founding partners in the golf racing team in the days when they ran a pair of golf liveried Lola P2 cars. And this happened at a Le Mans series race at Spa, where I got a feeling it was either Friday, it could have been the Saturday, where they were doing driver change practice. And Fred stepped out of the car, stumbled, fell over a tire, because they were also doing wheel change practice at the very same time, and very badly broke his leg. Um, so he missed the race because of a stumble, practicing to change drivers you've got to go a long way though um to better the the, the well-known story of noreen carthacaean at uh, the le mans 24 hours in a collis run uh audi r10 tdi uh which i mean this story has a very happy ending not for noreen who dislocated his shoulder falling off the pit wall on the way to the grid which meant that the car had to complete the race with two drivers which was then possible that was the race that effectively gave andre lotra the opportunity to show just how good he was and is credited by very many with catching the attention i think it already caught the attention but with firming up the attention that had been gathered uh, for andre's talents uh, to move on and become a full-fledged audi factory driver the following year um they're the two, I guess, that, uh, that, that, that immediately ring true with me. One that stands out as fun, and this comes from the open wheel world, was early 90s where uh, Robbie Gordon, a bit of a, a wild man and madman, apparently he just overslept uh, race morning <laughs> and was not there to take part in morning warm-up. And the team he was driving for actually threw in, <laughs> grabbed a, a unused driver, uh, someone who was not competing at the time, threw him in to take the car out and shake it down and do all the things that they needed. And I know it might, uh, oversleeping might sound like a very pedestrian answer. I just find it phenomenal because by and large, Graham, most motor races take part on Sundays. Uh, there's kind of a familiar pattern and rhythm that if there's a warm-up, it's going to be 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock at minimum. I mean, there's a, you know it's going to happen every time. And so, yeah, just simply oversleeping. And, you know, uh, in many cases, some of the hotels we stay at aren't too far from the track. I just love at least the mental imagery, possibly, of Robbie Gordon snoring away 
with the sounds of race cars, at least in the distance, and maybe wondering if he's having a dream about being in that warm-up session and being on time, and then finally waking up and realizing that not only was he not, but someone else actually was in his car because the team said, you know what, we're not going to let your silliness hold us back. So that's one that comes to mind there. Final one I'll give you, and it came, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name the names uh, for reasons which become obvious, uh, but this was a GT2 effort in a Le Mans series race, again at Spa, oddly enough, but a little earlier, um, and driver had not turned up, and driver still wasn't turning up, and still wasn't turning up, and that meant, of course, that they had to keep playing with strategy around driver times and I'm trying to recall whether this driver eventually turned up or didn't I don't think he did and the reason he didn't was because the guy who'd been driving him to the circuit another race driver was in jail <clears throat> having been involved in a race on the road with two other race drivers who were not present that weekend that resulted in an accident which killed the other two drivers um, that happened it was a real thing. And that was one of those awful creeping moments that uh, fell across uh, the whole of that track. It was two local guys um, basically messing about in a very highly tuned Porsche. And it ended very, very badly. But uh, I have a feeling that car uh, was withdrawn from the race because they couldn't fulfill the drive as hours as a result of what was happening half an hour down the road. Graham Goodwin achieving the near impossible of killing the fun while we are discussing the fun category here, friends. Um, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Put a sword through its head uh, there, didn't I? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Yes, death, murder, and dismemberment in our fun section to close the show. Uh, let's see. Going to grab a couple more. All right, so this is a very elaborate one. I assume it's aimed at me since... Some folks know I'm a life, well, almost lifelong fan of, uh, quote, professional racing, WWF, WWE. Tim Same mentioning that since WrestleMania is this Sunday, and with that in mind, if you put the cars of IMSA and the WEC in a Royal Figure 8 Destruction Derby Rumble at, insert local speedway here, with single cars entering at one-minute intervals, and where the last car running wins, which car and driver would be the winner? So the, the Royal Rumble format, at least in wrestling, Graham, is usually there will be 20 to 30 wrestlers. And they will obviously start the match with the first two. And at I think it's about every three minutes, maybe five minutes, the little horn sounds and they count down uh, from 10 to 1. And the entrance music starts and the, the wrestler comes out and jumps into the ring. And so you keep getting more and more wrestlers added in. Obviously, you don't end up really having 20 or 30 in the ring all at once. Uh, you lose by getting thrown over the top ring and your foot or any part of your body touching the ground below. So you get those who come in and end up getting thrown right out. So anyways, but it's this just constant addition of more and more wrestlers coming in and the last one standing wins Royal Rumble. So in that format of just adding car after car at one minute intervals and the fact that Tim is at a speedway, so I assume we're talking an oval, uh, a proper uh, American, we'll just go a short oval. Um, talking about the last car running, happening to win, which car would win among IMSA and WEC vehicles in this destruction derby figure eight on top of that, uh, and which driver would be the winner? 
so here's my thought. And at, at first I wanted to go with the GT car because okay. you say, well, these are, you know, road based, heavy by comparison to a prototype, heavy metal structure for, in most cases. Uh, and therefore they should be able to take hits and, you know, really stand up to the punishment. But then I think about, well, yeah, but if we're looking at a Porsche GTLM or GTD slash GTEM, they do have those front mounted radiators and a little bit of contact and all of a sudden you're, you know, the motor's blowing up or, you know, you hit this thing from the rear and there's some really vital structure that gets torn away. The exhausts are flattened, uh, you name it. Um, we're, we're, we're not we're not talking about the uh, the legality panels being in play here. It's basically last man standing. Exactly, exactly. So at first I was thinking GT Tim that we would have to go with a GT car, but then then I thought of one particular type of car that I think is perfect. Graham, I'm going to go to you on the driver. But right. uh, but so I'm going to need your help to answer this. But I I'm pretty solid on the car. That would be an LMP2 Riley Multimatic Mark Thirty. Ooh, zombie zombie prototype. That thing, <laughs> hit it, punch it, shoot it, blow it up, drop uh drop a plane on that thing. You can't kill it. We we didn't get to see it often we do get to see it obviously in mazda form uh that sucker can take a punch and another punch the thing is just built like a brick uh in carbon fiber form i would say it's certainly going to be a p2 car you might disagree with the exact model i just i look at that uh the, the riley multimatic mark 30 and just think of it as a, a p2 based tank so i think that is the <laughs> almighty battering ram that would get to the finish i just don't know which p2 driver we would well, say doesn't... would be the winner doesn't necessarily be a P2 driver. I'm wrong. If it's, yeah, if it's, wrong. if it's, a, I just if thought it's, of it. So, and I uh, apologize. I'm going to have to steal this back and answer it. The go clear for it. answer, and maybe it should be a Liget, uh P2. Maybe it should be an Areca P2. Gustavo Jakobin. Come on, Ooh, man. No, no, no. I think mean, but, he, but he'll have a target on his back. That's not going to happen. You, you should know by now, you know, if you go uh, watching the Demolition Derby, it's the it's the man they expect to win that's not going to win. I, I went into, he's the one-man wrecking ball in a P2 but, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but everybody's just going to go up on him. It'd be six, six on to one, and they'd oh, willingly, oh, they'd right, willingly right. throw themselves on the sword so that he couldn't win. No, so you've got, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Yeah, so you've got, you've got two ways of looking at it. You've got the way I'm going to put in front of you and then the correct way, okay? So the way I'm going to put in front of you, it'd be the big guy. It'd be Montoya. It would be Paul Delana. Big, muscly, you know, that kind of frame. But that's, that's not going to happen. That's what we're calling Montoya, big and muscly. That, that, no, no, no. <laughs> well, big. Okay, Just like big. me. Yeah, you know, yeah, MP big. pure muscles. Yep. Okay, I'm going with it. Right. All right. So put it a different way. Forget the car. Put all the IMSA and all the WC drivers in a darkened room. Who's the, the person that's going to come out standing? It's going to be one of the girls. Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course it's going to be the Mayor Shank trio. Of course Cat Leg is going to be the one dealing the death blow at the end with a smoking pile of, you know, 
beautifully Gibson engineered rubble uh, at her mercy as she hits it for the 15th time uh, with her Acura NSX. Of course, it's going to be one of the girls because one thing we know about girls, they're, they're not just awesome, they're deadly. And in a fight, boys, we've got no chance. None at all. Well, I like the sentiment of that, but uh, if anything, it would be their team co-owner Jackie Heinricher who has a military background so that would she would be the one that I would probably fear more than any there so yeah I mean granted Andy Lally is the obvious choice right he's the one well-known uh, boxer MMA guy fights people in uh, season one of who the hell are you he told the story of getting in a, a fight a roadside fight road rage getting out and uh, cleaning the guy's clock with a, a small bat that he had in his car. So, you know, I mean, Lally, I don't know. There, there are some unhinged folks, that's for sure. Just not enough fighters, I would say. Too many lovers in IMSA. I mean, how's this? And, and no disrespect, we love the kid. Could you picture Jordan Taylor actually trying to throw a punch at someone or something? It'd be cute. Right? It'd be, but you know, again, lover, not a fighter. He makes irreverent videos with his dog or as an alternate ego. Montoya, though, yeah. I, granted, he's a lover too, but I can Street see fighter. That, oh, Street he, fighter. He can punch the living snot out of you. Um, who else? Yeah, but no, no, come on, come on. I'm Magnuson gonna, I'm gonna strikes back. me as someone. Magnuson Maybe. strikes me as someone who could go mini Danish Hulk on you. No, I'm telling you right now. You you can put your Montoya up for whatever prize you like, but I'm going to go with your your uh, your other choice, Jackie Heinricher, with a swift knee to the area where his knee will actually meet on Montoya. And I'm saying to you, he goes down like a sack of potatoes. Okay, and um, because we're here and because I love this, I'm actually just scrolling through some other drivers to see if any stand out. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, no, not him. Ryan Deal. Now, again, oh, this yeah. is a lover of a man. He's Scottish. There, there's, when you there's, say, hang on, I might be listening. When you say lover of a man, well, just uh, is that a description of him or is it not his lifestyle? Yeah, I yeah. Didn't say, I didn't say sheep, okay? But he is someone <laughs> who just strikes me, who has an uh, an on and off switch where he might be able to uh, to go psycho. That yep. would be fun. Um, again, I'm just looking. We could be, we could be just lucky that Alan McNish is retired because kneecaps are safe. Finally, there's for a, the first there's time. a fight. There's a feisty little terrier. Yeah, if Gabby Chavez was was still, you know, in IMSA, that's someone who uh, is definite MMA guy who could who could bring the pain. Yeah, I'm struggling. Uh, okay, I'm gonna scroll through here to GTD. I mean, Joey Hand. There's you will not find a nicer, calmer person. His heartbeat is like three per year, right? Just it's just <laughs> the chillest of all time. There's nothing there. Briscoe, Ryan Briscoe, he strikes me as someone who could get feisty. Westbrook, knowing Ooh. the limited no. mental capacity he works with to be just to start, stand up. Just he stand gets up. mad at everything. Yep. Um, he's. I'm, I'm, 
I remember his toilet habits as well. Oh, so. A decrepit human being. Uh, so there could be something there for sure. Um, again, I'm just looking down the list. Lawrence Van Tour. Again, this guy, he should... He's, it's just sweetness. It, it's pure candy and warmth there. So I'm, I'm looking for a fighter. Um, God, there aren't any super grumpy Frenchmen we can point to. I'm uh, looking for stereotypes. Hey, yeah, again, he's been uh, he's been evicted permanently here. <laughs> All right. Well, again, we don't really have him anymore. But if he did, well, okay, he's on the WEC side, so that would qualify. Jimmy Bruni. That, yeah, that's a he might be the have punchiest. You, have you have you have you experienced Jimmy when he's grumpy? I'm, I, I'm still waiting to probably. experience Jimmy when he's happy. So, a grumpy Jimmy is an unpleasant Jimmy. Um, uh, Cooper McNeil at six foot twelve, in theory, could be raining down blows on everybody. But the guy head has the best thing. life of anyone. He's in Super Bowl <laughs> commercials. He's, I mean. Uh, it's too easy for him. There's not enough anger there. All right, here's someone who I know can get a little bit grumpy in, in the right way, and the fact that he's uh, the the polar opposite of McNeil height-wise, Patrick Long, right? Mm -hmm. a, a, an angry ginger? Ooh, I mean, that again, your, your, your kneecaps are going to be bloodied once he's done with you, but I'm just looking down the rest, man, and I, I'm disappointed. I'll just say that. I'm disappointed that they're not more just animals, uh, at least on the Imps side. Tandy. Yeah, I, but he's got Tandy. kids now. He's mellowed a little bit. Yeah, but if you, if you were to threaten his kids, think about that. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, he has no pride about himself anymore. I mean, he's just kind of letting himself you know, fall apart, but that's okay. Um, there, there's something here, there, uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess if my choice of Yakiman so, is the bowling ball, wrecking ball isn't working. Yakiman versus Heinricher or, or or Catleg or both or all the girls onto Yakiman, uh, he'd be left a bloodied a husk of a man. All right, well, let's give ourselves three or four more minutes, which means one, maybe two more here. Um, where should we go to close the show? We're going to go to our pal Shay Adam, the awesome Shay Adam, who says, you've just crashed a race car and have to go tell the team owner that it was your fault. Who would you prefer to be the team owner because leniency is of their character? Ooh. Engage sarcastic mode. Uh, Alan McNish. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm sure he's a peach to do with in those circumstances. Um, it's not a quite a team owner, uh, but a car owner. And this goes back to Sebring just a few years ago before Paul Delalana moved from Turner Motorsport to Aston Martin Racing. And you may or may not recall, he did not get the, uh, the rub of the green in terms of some of the decisions that were made both in CTSC and in IMSA at Daytona. And I popped along to have a chat with Will Turner to find out whether or not Paul was actually going to show up. Um, I think at that time, Paul owned one of the fabulous uh, Z4 GT3s in GTD that Turner were running. And he got Paul on the phone and he put it on the speaker. And Paul's very words were, um, if you see my Learjet fly into the side of the Umsa Tech trailer, you'll know I've arrived. Oh, jeez. That's, that's an angry man at that stage. He wasn't a very happy bunny. They don't, I have to say, the very nature of team owners doesn't, 
sort of speak leniency, does it? No, but there is one that comes to mind, at least on this side of the old pond, and that's Michael Shank. And oh. I don't know, I mean, leniency, I would maybe say just deeply understanding. He wouldn't be happy. Uh, it's a business, so it's, it's potentially money lost, but as a longtime racer himself, and also as just one of the nicer, more affable people you will meet, he just strikes me as the type where if you were to crash a car, uh, having him as a team owner, he would be the one to understand and support you rather than tear into you. Another one who would, might be a Richard, bit of a... Richard Dean of that... I must say, United, your autosports, Richard Dean, much that same kind of character, um, without a shadow of a doubt, as one of the, the two co-owners at United, uh, Richard. He wouldn't be happy, but there'd be a discussion, not a row. The one that might come across as a surprise is Roger Penske. And this is someone, now, was he this way in the first two or three years of being a team owner? I can't tell you. I could just say that having done this for 50 plus years now, uh, someone crashing a Penske Acura, a Penske IndyCar, NASCAR, whatever, obviously there's no smiles and happiness, but he is so forward and future-minded that it, it does not become a sticking point. It is a, okay, it happens. If we can fix it and get going, we'll do it. If not, then we're just going to have to do better the next time around. There's, It's an amazing switch that he has. And you go, wow, if anything, you'd figure Roger might be one who just expects perfection and anything less is just going to lead to internal calamity for the driver who crashed. But that has not been his character. Now, if you're the guy who's done it six races in a row... It's a different conversation, but I would say RP is one who, yeah, definitely leads. Um, and I'll just throw this in as a little anecdote, not from the world of sports cars, but from open wheel with one driver I worked with, Mark Hotchkiss, uh, whose family entered and participated in um, IMSA forever. Uh, this is something to me that I, it really came to heart because it blew me away. We were, I think, on pole in the Indy Lights race for the 1996 uh, event at Cleveland. And Mark, uh, it was a high-speed run to turn one, which is a, it wasn't even 90 degrees. It was like about 135-degree right-hand turn on an airport circuit, super dusty. And one jackass decided he was going to go down the inside and pass everyone and win the race uh, in turn one. And cleaned Mark's clock just, you know, tore corners off the car. Our race was over instantly. And we, at least me, and we and the team were really grumpy and upset because we thought we could have won. It would have been a great thing, etc. And Mark jumped out, came to the pits, and was almost emotionless. And I was the one who was the stupid one, Graham, who was like, oh, <laughs> damn it, man. Jill, oh, we're going to go find the guy and kill him and beat him up. And he's like, hey, man, it's over done nothing to do next race right don't waste your time don't don't get at don't get mad it's done it cannot be changed on to the next one and i can tell you that at 20 whatever years old when that when that piece of wisdom was visited by on me by mark it for the most part stuck and it really helped me understand. So that's why I think when I look at someone like RP, where you go, oof, that might be a scary person to see after a screw-up. Quite the opposite. Same exact mindset. 
Great stuff. Uh, some fabulous people in racing, aren't there? Absolutely fabulous. Uh, we're going to finish off with Lee Tucker, who asks, is there a favourite piece of gear, memorabilia, a souvenir, a bit of swag you brought, uh, you bought or been given, MP? I know we've, we've told a few of these stories before. Let's try and steer away from the ones we've shared with the listeners before and think of a new one. Not my battered piece of Toyota GT1 or my Thomas Engard section of bodywork from a Lola Aston Martin. Something different. Okay, this one, and uh, I've... I probably shouldn't mention it because it was done in a super low volume, but it's also the last question of the show, and I assume that some folks might have checked out by now, so maybe there aren't too many of you that are going to hear this, but I think about two years ago, uh, my dear friends at All American Racers had a special something commissioned, and it was a bottle opener shaped in the form of the nose of Dan Gurney's 1967 Belgian Grand Prix winning uh, Eagle Formula One car. And it's just that iconic Eagle nose. It's the uh, blue with the white stripe and the number 36 on it. And it's, again, just, just showed up in the mail, Graham. And it, you know, had the return address of all American racers. And I'm just, first of all, anytime I see something like that, I kind of pee my pants a little bit. I'll be very honest, because even though Dan and I were, were very good friends, still just hero, legend of legends. Um, and so anything, anytime something like that would show up, as I've mentioned before, it's just this, oh my goodness type moment. And so opened it up, not knowing what the, the dear folks there had sent and it was this limited edition one of 36 uh bottle openers and it again a bottle opener or i mean bottle i guess might think beer but i'm thinking more like some sort of high-end something but just it was it's in this beautiful felt little drawstring uh, pouch and so open that it definitely had my curiosity going what is this and so opened it up and pulled that out and saw that here is this Again, just one of 36, I believe, made only for family and friends kind of thing. And to think that the Big Eagle and family thought to include me in that, I I, I don't even know how to express the surreal aspect of that, Graham. Um, it, it is obviously an honor. It is obvious. It's so many... I, I, I struggle, words are my living, and I struggle to find words for this because I can think of dozens, if not hundreds of other people who should probably get that before I do. So that's just one of those things that I've, I guess, honestly, I might just be mentioning it for the first time. I think some other folks might have tweeted out or posted a photo of getting one on Facebook, and that's not a negative thing at all. Just for me, it was one of those things where you go, oh boy. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's one I think I've never mentioned. Well, there's one I'm not sure I've mentioned, um, and it came from a very dear friend. It came from actually my business partner, Daily Sports Card, Dave Lord, um, and Dave had a beloved friend who lost way too early uh, to the evils of cancer, and Dave inherited in his friend's will his collection of motorsport books, and for my fiftieth birthday. 
uh, Dave handed one of those books to me. And it is a copy of Ronnie Peterson's biography, autobiography, and it's signed by Ronnie. Ronnie was my very first motorsport hero. Uh, he is the he was the first person uh, that when we lost him, I can remember crying as a, as a young lad. Um, and I treasure that and will always treasure it. And I thought that was a magnificent gesture from Dave. Uh, and I'm looking at that book right now on, on my bookshelf in the office at the bottom of the garden, which is still not a shed, by the way. Um, it is those things, isn't it? It's the stories that have just got just an aspect of the personal that make a difference. So I've got some fabulous things, um, you know, in drawers and on shelves and up in loft in boxes and all over the place. But um, they're the ones. They're the ones that actually have got a story behind them that uh, just give you a moment to remember that moment. And that, that's what memorabilia means. It means memory. And uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a great question. And I know we've had similar questions before, but ask it again because there's other answers because there always are when you've been doing this for a long time things you pick up things that people hand to you things that you walk away from a race meeting with um and there's some special memories and and i hope very many of you out there listening this evening have got similar memories from things that you've got from friends trackside or in the paddock or signed or whatever um because that's what it's all about isn't it mp isn't it about memories is it about just that sense of belonging community that's what sport does I forgot what you just said. I'm sorry. Yes, memories. <laughs> <laughs> memories. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, uh, and I don't get it. We need to sh shut down the show here in a second. But yeah, uh, honestly, so much of what we do with the podcast here, I know this is a weekly topical show driven by you and your questions, but so much of what we do with this, with what we write, whatever, it, it's about either creating memories or reflecting on memories that bring us happiness, sharing tales that you go, hey, cool. I've got a life to fill. What do I fill it with? Well, if you happen to be in our little world of motor racing, um, we're trying to, you know, for most of us, we try and bring those those memories to you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I would also just mention this. If you have cool things, meaningful items of memorabilia that you have received, uh, if you want, send us a photo on Twitter, Facebook tend to be the two places where we gravitate most, but send us a photo. You know, we'd love to see it. We'd love to hear the story and Absolutely. maybe again for next week, or, you know, if we get enough of them, we'll dedicate uh, carve out some time in the show for it uh, of you just sharing, you know, it might be something as, as simple as a, a hero card that you had signed by a driver at an event, but there might be a really cool story uh, to go along with it. It might be a, a body panel, who knows, but um, we, those are the things we'd love to hear about. Love to, see it. Love love to, to see hear it. about it, it. None of those things involve BOP unless you somehow got an air restrictor off of a car and uh, <laughs> the, the technical inspector signed it. But yeah. Um, are, are you Lena Gade? Yes. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Uh, but don't be afraid to send those along and, and maybe for next week's show, you know, uh, send in some thoughts about uh, your favorite pieces of memorabilia. Send us a photo. I realize this is, this is a radio slash audio medium, so we will have to describe it. Uh, we can't show it, but, uh, would let, I think that might be kind of cool. And maybe we can do that on a semi-regular basis. Uh, if more folks want to engage in that manner. All right, Mr. Goodwin. I am Marshall Pruitt. You are the GG, person who isn't in a shed, no longer a male stripper, but certainly is yep. a fine editor 
of DailySportsCar.com. This is the good old Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Why? Because that's me, and I just said my name, and that's really weird. This is our Week in Sports Car show. We have awesome folks at the Justice Brothers and Team Cooper Tires making this possible. And we're going to say farewell to this episode and prepare to say hello to next week's next week. Good night for me.